So we're going to read Second uh, Corinthians chapter one, uh, and then we're going going to read the whole chapter uh, and the first four verses of chapter two. This is God's holy word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I wrote, I, as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Amen. And this is God's word. Okay, everyone. Well, um, please turn to uh, 2 Corinthians, if you're not there already. 
you will need the handout this evening. Let me assure you, you will need the handout. You will die without the handout this evening, okay? It's very important that you have the handout. I'll tell you why you've got it in a moment. But first, let me give you a question. I want you to talk to your next door neighbor about this question for a minute or so. Can you remember when you have heard a bit of 2 Corinthians taught to you? Sermon, Bible study, uh, which bit was it? Um, talk about that for a moment. Can you remember anything about 2 Corinthians um, from exposure in the past? Go, talk. Okay, now, here's a, a guess. Here's a guess. Some of you will have heard talks on chapters 4 and 5 about gospel work, the nature of gospel work. Anybody heard talks on that? Yeah, nods, nods. Okay, good. Some of you will have t had uh, heard talks on 8 and 9, usually in the context of giving projects that your church is taking on. They're the great uh, how to give money to Christian ministry chapters. Well, we'll see if they are, but that's what you'll have heard a talk about. Some of you will have heard uh, 614 um, mentioned from time to time. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, applied usually to do not go out with, a boy with a non Christian boyfriend. It's a bad thing to do, though in its context, it's talking about something slightly different. Anybody heard anything much on 2 Corinthians beyond those areas? Anybody had it? Remember any, I, th I think I heard somebody here over here say, have, can, do you remember anything about 2 Corinthians? They said no. I think somebody said no over there, which is, that's, a, that's an honest answer, isn't it? It's a big book. Look at how many chapters has it got? You have to count because it doesn't come to mind, does it, instantly? 13 chapters. It's a big, big letter. My impression is that it is not much taught in Christian circles. And there's a really good reason for that. Because when you open it, did you understand what he was reading earlier on? Did you understand what he was going on about? It's not immediately obvious what this letter is going on about. And as you read through the letter, it appears very bitty. I, one, one of the things we observe, if you were here for 1 Corinthians a few years ago, is that 1 Corinthians looks very bitty. A collection of different bits and pieces. Well, if 1 Corinthians looks like a jumble of bits and pieces, 2 Corinthians is even more so. And so it's very little taught, which is, let me say, exceedingly unfortunate. Because 2 Corinthians is one of the most helpful, clearest explanations and descriptions and examples of what genuine gospel ministry looks like. That's the big issue, I think, running through all of this letter. What does the work of the gospel look like to do? What does the life of the gospel worker look like to do? What does a gospel congregation look like that's doing the right things? What's the genuine article look like? Folks, this is a very important question. You might think it's the kind of question that's only really important for somebody who's thinking about going into pastoral ministry. But let me assure you, it's a very important question for congregations and for Christians. Why? Because congregations choose their pastors and teachers. Nearly always, the person who's teaching a church is there because the church has chosen that person to teach the church. And the person who leads your Sunday school is there because people in the church have chosen that person to lead the Sunday school. What sort of person will you choose as your pastor and teacher? What sort of pattern of ministry will you encourage them to do? That is the big issue in this letter. From beginning to end, 
That issue dominates this letter. What does the genuine gospel worker look like? Why is this an issue in Corinth? Well, because there is great uncertainty about what the real genuine article looks like. Uh, as we'll discover during the weekend, there are many and various reasons why uh, the Corinthian congregations are really unclear about what the real thing looks like. And uh, if you can get a handle on this letter, it's a terrific help to understand what the real thing looks like. That's what we're going to do. This evening is just scene setting. One of the things that makes this letter a complicated letter to read is because it's a complicated letter. <laughs> and it's a complicated situation in this church. And what I want to do, all I really want to do this evening uh, is to give you uh, a kind of introduction to how did we get to where we are by the time this letter is written? How have things got to the way they are? And this is where you need the handout. It is a very full handout. Uh, it has lots of detail in, partly because we're going to cover a lot of ground, and very quickly, uh, partly because it may help you to be able to refer back to the information later on, but partly simply to have down in paper in front of you the complexity of the situation that this letter presents us with and presented the Apostle Paul with. Now, uh, what we're going to do uh, here is... Um, First, I want to give you a kind of bird's eye view of the letter. What's actually in it? Well, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 13, Paul introduces the letter by talking about his travels in Asia. Uh, at the back of your handout, you'll find a map. Uh, we, you, you might like to have that map in hand. Uh, it's not come out all that well. If you come with colored pencils this weekend, be a great coloring project. Make your map live this weekend. That might help you. Um, Paul's travels in Asia. Asia, you'll find on your map, is what we would call modern-day Turkey, okay? Uh, east end of the Mediterranean. Paul talks about why he sent Titus with a difficult letter rather than uh, visiting the Corinthians himself. In chapter 2, verse 14 to 613, he describes and defends his ministry against other people. We'll look at that section of the letter tomorrow morning. It's very important. Chapter 6, verse 14 to 7-4, he urges them to separate themselves from unbelievers. Chapter 7, verses 5 to 16, he expresses thankfulness that now he's met up with Titus, who he sent with a difficult letter, He's very glad about how they've responded. We're back to where we started again in chapter 7. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he urges the Corinthians to restart and complete the collection that he has started for the Judean Christian churches. And then in chapters 10 to 13, he urges them to do a whole bunch of things in advance of his next visit to them. It looks like just a jumble of stuff, doesn't it? All sorts of bits. There's a good deal about visiting and writing and travel plans. Why is travel so important that he starts off his letter talking about his travel plans? There's clearly, as you read through the letter, a great deal of upset about things that have gone on in the past. He spends a lot of time trying explaining himself, apparently against criticism that he's received. And as you read through the letter, it's clear that some very difficult people have arrived in Corinth. In fact, I think they are the big issue in this letter. That makes it very difficult to read. It's not, you know, <laughs> I feel like reading this afternoon. What will I read as a nice read? I know, I'll pick up two Corinthians. I'll it's just not that kind of text. It's too complicated. Now, uh, what we're going to do this evening is try and get inside. Let me give you, to start off with, an overview of Paul's life following his conversion. This is important in one or two ways. The first decade or so of Paul's life after he was converted, he's involved in mission in and around Palestine. You don't get much of this in the book of Acts, 
but you do get a little list of it at the beginning of the, the Galatian letter. That's AD 34 to 46-ish, 12 years probably. Then, and here's the bit we're more familiar with from Acts, from 13 to 21, about a decade of itinerant ministry wandering around the eastern end of the Mediterranean in what is now Turkey and Macedonia and Albania and Greece and so on. Three phases to that. First, Cyprus and southern Galatia. Then, Macedonia and Achaia. That's Acts 15 to 18. That's, that's the Greek bit of it. Um, and during that, he spends 18 months in Corinth. That's his first visit to Corinth, probably in AD 50. Then we get a third phase, Asia and Macedonia, in which he spends two years in Ephesus. Then, towards the end of the book of Acts, chapters 21 following, we get a longish period of imprisonment, probably five years. Uh, Jerusalem, Caesarea, Rome, and then probably after Acts 28, a brief period of freedom, we're not sure quite how long, and then his death sometime between AD 64 and 67, we're not quite sure when. That's the scope of Paul's ministry. It roughly splits into three decades. A decade in and around Palestine, a decade wandering around uh, the eastern Mediterranean, and a decade, much of which is spent in prison. Uh, before his death, something like that. Now, what I want you to do is to zoom in on the itinerant ministry decade or so, AD 47 to 58. Here the map might be quite helpful. And I want to say three things about this decade. First, in this decade, Paul's focus seems to be on trying to get the gospel to the Roman world. Um, look, at, uh, look at the map and look at where he goes in his second missionary journey. Uh, he goes to Thessalonica and Philippi up at the top of the Adriatic. He is at that point on a Roman road called the Ignatian Way. And the Ignatian Way, if you follow it through goes right across the top of what we would call now Greece to a port on the coast from which you'd go straight across to Italy and to Rome. That's where that road takes you. Why does Paul not go to Rome? Well, almost certainly because at that point, in and around that point, when he reaches the Philippi area, the Thessalonica area, he hears that the Jews have been exiled uh, from Rome. The Jews were shut out of Rome. In fact, when Paul gets to Corinth, who does he meet? He meets a couple called Priscilla and Aquila who are there because they've been thrown out of Rome with the other Jews in Rome. What do you do if you want to get the gospel to the Roman world, but you can't go to Rome because you're a Jewish person? and the Jews have been shut out. Well, there are two ways of doing that. Either you can wait until things change, or you can ask to appear before Caesar and get taken there as a prisoner. And that, of course, is what Paul does at the end of the book of Acts. He asks for an appearance before Caesar. He's a Roman citizen, he can claim that right. In the meantime, what do you do if you want to get the gospel to the Roman world? Answer, you spend your time in the big Roman centers elsewhere. And that is precisely what Paul's pattern of ministry uh, does. Because he spends uh, 18 months in Corinth, which is a big Roman center, and two years plus in Ephesus, which is the other big Roman center. Uh, almost certainly the Corinthian letters were written from Ephesus. 
There's toing and froing from Ephesus to Corinth. He goes to Corinth first, then to Ephesus. But the big focus is getting the gospel to the Roman world, right beyond the confines of Judaism. Second point, that activity is vigorously opposed in the New Testament. All over the New Testament, there is evidence of an organized countermission to Paul's Gentile ministry. It comes from Jerusalem. It comes from Jews. Well, it would. That's who lives in Jerusalem. It comes from Jews within the Jerusalem church. And it appears that they're very, very upset about the fact that Paul, when he takes the gospel to Gentiles, does not require Gentiles to come under the law of Moses. Now, for us, that seems not a big thing, but it's a very big thing if you're a first century Palestinian Jew. A very big thing indeed. These people arrive everywhere that Paul goes. You bump into them all over the place in the New Testament, and they undermine his work with the Gentile Christians. They say this kind of thing. What Paul has given you, well, it's okay, it's okay, but you really do need to take Moses on board. You really do need to become more Jewish in practice. It looks like it might be a little different in emphasis from place to place, but you bump into it all over the New Testament. Let me give you just one example uh, to, to show that to you. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 20, please, very quickly. Here is Paul, the end of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And he warns the elders in the church in Ephesus that after he leaves, things are going to get difficult. And look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Question, how on earth does he know that? How on earth does he know that after his departure, difficult people are going to arrive and make things very difficult for these Gentile Christians? Answer, because that's what they do everywhere he goes. So often his ministry is messed up by people who arrive afterwards saying, you've got to take Moses on board. Otherwise, you can't be properly uh, keeping going all the way to the end of the Christian life. Now, I mention this here because we bump into this in 2 Corinthians. Since Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, a group has arrived in Corinth. They are obviously very impressive people. Paul calls them the super apostles, sarcastically, and other things less flattering. It is clear that they are Jewish people in background, Greek-speaking Jewish people, that they appear to be Christian, but Paul, all the way through the letter, identifies them as opponents, charlatans, unbelievers, people who peddle God's word for financial gain, dodgy people. Their arrival in Corinth has made everything worse, and it was already a difficult relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. And I think it's them in particular that is the focus of this letter. That's the second thing. You see this all over the New Testament, not least in this letter. Third thing, Paul goes to significant lengths in his letters to counter this kind of thing. He warns people, as in Acts 20, that they're coming before they arrive. He spends a lot of the time in his letters addressing the issues they address. Read the letter to the Galatians, for example. It's absolutely full of this. But also, he does something else. He gets together a collection of money from the Gentile churches to be sent to the Jerusalem church to alleviate the hardship that they've come into. You find evidence of the collection all the way through the New Testament as well. It's a big theme in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For various reasons, the Corinthians have stopped collecting the collection. And in these chapters, Paul writes to get them going at collecting again. Why does Paul do this? 
Why does he get a whole range of Gentile churches to save up money to send to the church in Jerusalem? Well, we'll find out in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, but in brief, he does it in order that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem will start to be thankful for Paul's Gentile ministry rather than resentful of it and opposing it. It's a really big play in his New Testament ministry. And interestingly, it doesn't seem to have worked. Um, we find the, uh, the collection uh, arriving in Jerusalem in Acts 21. Uh, the delegation is sent from the churches in Acts 20, uh, 19 and 20. It arrives in Acts 21 and it doesn't seem to have any impact at all on the Jerusalem church as far as we can see. But that's why he's doing it to try and make the Judean Christians thankful for the Gentile Christians rather than resenting them and, uh, and angry about them. Okay, now let me zoom in on Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. And here, here it gets seriously complicated, ladies and gentlemen. So hold on to your hats for a moment and uh, summon up your mental strength. I know it's difficult at 20 to 10 on a beautiful evening at the end of a long week, but summon up your mental energies and just think what a complicated situation this is. It sets the scene for the issues in 2 Corinthians. Paul first visited Corinth in AD 50. He spends time in the synagogue and then when he's thrown out of the synagogue at the house of Titius Justus, he is accused by the Jewish community before the Roman proconsul the church has a significant cross-section of society, including some quite wealthy ones. And the Corinthians are not all that happy about the fact that these, they will not accept his money. They offer him money for the work that he's done among them. He refuses to take it. It's one of the big issues in 1 Corinthians as a letter. And we find it persists all the way through to this letter. We'll bump into that uh, later on in, in the weekend. Paul has to leave Corinth in AD 52, and he uh, goes back to uh, Judea and then to Antioch, the sending church. And then he moves again uh, to Asia and uh, spends some time in Ephesus. Uh, Paul uh, arrived in Ephesus in about AD 53. He spent about three years worth of time there. After his visit, other people arrive in Corinth. Uh, Apollos, a very uh, persuasive gospel worker. Uh, Peter, the apostle. You can find evidence of them in 1 Corinthians. And interestingly, their arrival in Corinth after Paul has been there seems to make the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians more difficult. Why? Because in some ways they're rather different in style from Paul. And the Corinthians are presented with a different pattern of ministry, something that looks a little different. And they like it a little better in various ways. So there start to be uncertainties among some in Corinth about whether Paul is doing things right in his apostolic ministry. While Paul is in Ephesus, he hears things that have happened in Corinth he hears that some of the Corinthians have not separated from certain believers who are engaged in sexual immorality. And so he writes a letter. It's not a letter we've got. He refers to it in 1 Corinthians as his previous letter. He urges them in the previous letter to separate from unrepentant people calling themselves Christian. The Corinthians appear to have misinterpreted this instruction as though they should separate from the pagan world in general. Part of the point of 1 Corinthians is to tell them, no, that's not what I want you to do, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Then, we're still in Ephesus, three things happen at roughly the same time. Titus, who's probably the postman with the previous letter, is sent to Corinth to establish the collection for the Judean churches. The Corinthians write to Paul to ask uh, clarification on a number of issues that they're concerned about and a group from one of the house churches, Chloe's household, arrives in Ephesus and provides news that things are not going well in Corinth. And then Paul writes 1 Corinthians. It's the first bit we've got, but there's been quite a lot of toing and froing already. 
And uh, as well as uh, dealing with all lots of stuff that they've raised and Chloe's reported, uh, he tells them of his travel plans, that he plans to leave the region soon and that he hopes to travel to them to send the collection on from them by some accredited people. Bad news comes from Corinth, probably from Timothy. And we don't know what the details of the bad news are, but it makes Paul visit Corinth a second time and much sooner than he seems to have meant to do. It does not appear to have been a comfortable visit at all. Um, uh, we get little hints here and there in, in the letter. There appears to have been particular difficulty with one person, an opponent, and uh, he's mentioned in chapter 2. In addition, presumably because things have got worse, Paul changes his travel plans, the ones that he's announced earlier on. And instead of having one more visit to Corinth before, the sent, before departing with the collection to Jerusalem, he says, now I'm going to visit you and then I'm going to go to Macedonia and then I'm going to visit you again. Apparently, this change of plans proves to be very uh, damaging. I wonder if you remember, as we heard that passage read out earlier on, he talks about why he didn't come to them as he said he would. Now, that's an issue that comes up several times in the letter. Paul goes back to Ephesus. While in Ephesus, he changes his mind about his travel plans. <laughs> it seems he thought better of his two-visit strategy and decides instead of visiting to write. And he writes a letter. And that's mentioned in the passage we've just had read to us. The letter seems to have been a very strong letter. It did not go down well in Corinth. Well, it kind of went down well. Partly they responded well, but it created its own problems. And it would seem that after he sent it, he was slightly wondering if he'd done the right thing. Uh, because as we'll find in this letter, he expresses great anxiety. I didn't meet Titus. I didn't meet Titus. I didn't meet Titus. He wasn't there. I didn't know how the letter had gone down till I met Titus. Eventually, however, he does meet Titus. In Macedonia, where Paul has now got to, and the immediate uh, cause of writing the letter is that he's met up with Titus. He's heard how the severe... That is encouraging, isn't it? I can see it. Yes, I am. You're getting darker and darker. I thought, I can... Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Now, Frex, let me digest that at your leisure. I've gone very quickly through it. Let me just make a simple observation. This is by now a very, very complex five or six year exposure to Paul the Apostle. We've had two visits. One of them has been a very painful visit. We've had three letters. One of them has been a very difficult letter to take. We've had all the way through from the beginning onwards significant Areas of disagreement, controversy, upset, and misunderstanding. 2 Corinthians reflects all of that complexity. That's why it's a difficult letter to read, because there's a whole stack of things in the background. Some of them think Paul is a kind of yes and no person. He can't make up his mind. Did you get that in chapter 1? Um Look at 117. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? No, I'm not a two-minded person, really. He has to go to a, lot, a great length to explain why he said he was coming, but he didn't come, and he wrote instead, and all that kind of stuff. Some of them view him as weak. He hasn't been able to sort all the problems out. They've stopped collecting for the collection, which was an important part of his strategy against the kind of false teaching that they're now having to deal with. Some of them are still entangled in some of the sinful behavior they've been entangled with right from the beginning. Going to the idol temple, worshiping idols, sexual immorality, all that kind of stuff. Some of them are still upset about his refusal to take money from them. That's a big issue in this letter. It crops up several times. 
Um, some of them think that the collection is a dodgy way of him getting money from them without looking like he's getting money from them. That's a big issue in this letter. They accuse him of being cunning and crafty and, you know, manipulative. Perhaps he's getting the money behind the scenes. And uh, in particular, since he last visited, this new group of people has arrived and they have inflamed all the problems. They have added to the misrepresentation and the accusation and the casting doubts on Paul's ministry. So folks, this is a very complicated letter in which a whole stack of stuff is being dealt with. Why does Paul write? Well, he writes in part to encourage them about how well they've responded in some ways. He writes in part to correct their continuing bad behavior. Most of all, he is profoundly concerned to win back their confidence towards his way of doing stuff, especially now that these other people have arrived who do things differently. That's the biggest thing in this letter. So as you read 2 Corinthians, you meet an immensely complex set of sins and upsets and misunderstandings and hurts and malicious manipulative behavior. I wonder, how would you go about trying to sort that out? Just think about that for a moment. Think of the complexity of that. What would you do? What would you say? I know there are some people in the, in, in the room who, who are on the course to training for Christian ministry at the moment. Let me ask you, if you were told that in five years you're going to have to deal with a problem like this one, how do you fancy that, chaps? You're going to carry on training? Or are you going to head for the hills and do something else? This is a really difficult thing to sort out, isn't it? Very complicated. Very great care is required. Very great relational sensitivity and thoughtfulness and carefulness with words so that they're not misunderstood. And trying to be nice and encouraging and yet firm and discouraging all at the same time. Really complicated. Well, over the course of this weekend, I hope we'll catch at least a glimpse of the Apostle Paul at work doing the genuine gospel ministry. Now, we haven't got any time to look at the detail this evening. Uh, but just let me note, uh, well, let's just look very, very quickly at the end of chapter one. Notice how he goes about explaining what he's done. Verse 15, I wanted to come to you. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. I wanted to come back to you from Macedonia. Notice what he's expressing there. He really did want to see them. He loves them. He's expressing love and concern. Was I daydreaming, vacillating when I wanted to do this? No, I wasn't. You know, I've always been straight with you. Verse 23, I called God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming. And I'm not trying to sound patronizing, verse 24. <laughs> Again, he's correcting possible misunderstanding here. I really want what will be good for you, what will give you joy. I really want you to stand firm. But I made up my mind to one not to make another painful visit for you, I wrote as I did, verse 3, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. He's talking about the previous visit here. It was very painful for all concerned. Verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and many tears, not to cause you pain, but because I love you and I want you to know that. Do you see how warmly relational that is? And do you see how careful he's trying to be? to show them that he, he's done all he's done because he cared for them. No doubt some in Corinth are saying he's done all he's done because he doesn't care about you at all. Why does he write you? 
strong letters? Why does he visit you with difficult visits? I absolutely no doubt at all that the super apostles who've just arrived in Jerusalem are saying, well, it all goes to show that he doesn't love you at all. And he doesn't care about you at all. If he cared about you, why would he be like that towards you? So fierce, so strong, so firm, so confrontational, so upsetting. Do you see the strength of that argument? They are there and they're being nice to the Corinthians. And Paul is over there and their recent contact with him has been very uncomfortable. So easy for them to say, well, he's a nasty man. He doesn't, he doesn't really love you. And... If they, manage to persuade, if, he manage, if they manage to persuade the Corinthians of that, they've won the argument. Do you see how careful he has to be? Well, this letter's like that all the way through. That careful. How can I say the right thing strongly enough, warmly enough, that they will not pay attention to those people, but rather... Come back to doing it our way, because that's the right way to do it. Very difficult exercise, that, isn't it? At a distance. No email, no Skype, no smartphone. All by letter. Got to be very good with your words, haven't you, to do that? Very careful. Well, folks, let me step back from all this. We've had a, a whistle-stop tour of the kind of issues we'll meet in the letter. Uh, we'll slow down a bit tomorrow. Uh, let me just step back from this and ask the question, what is real gospel ministry like? Well, according to this letter, it is not nice and tidy. Sometimes it's really, really complicated. It's very, very important for us to recognize that and give it proper weight. Because it's very easy for us to assume that if the work of the gospel is being done right, it will look right. It'll be nice and tidy. Now, I, I guess most of us are not bought in members of the Prosperity Gospel Club. Most of us know that if we do gospel ministry right, we're not going to get the jet and the shiny suit and the best life ever and all that kind of stuff. But we sometimes, as evangelical Christians, have a kind of watered-down version of the prosperity gospel, a kind of slightly prosperity-ish gospel, prosperity-light gospel. And it goes a bit like this. If I'm doing Christian life and ministry right, my church will grow. It will be peaceful. It will be moderately, moderately successful. It will not have splits. I, the gospel worker, will be relatively respected in the community. The church will be really glad that I'm their minister. Other Christian workers will probably approve of me if I'm doing it right. Well, folks, try telling that to the Apostle Paul and see what kind of response you get. Because at this point in Paul's ministry, his church the one he planted with the leaders he trained is not going well, is very divided, does not think it's privileged to have him as its founding church planter, uh, does not respect him significantly at all, and is not glad that he's been there. Neither is it glad to have another letter from him because the previous letter has been very difficult, and so on and so on. Let me ask you, do you think the Apostle Paul knew what he was doing? He must have known what he, of course he knows what he's doing. Do you think he was good at evangelism and starting churches? Well, look at what happened to his work in Corinth. Just look at it in this letter. This is the anti-prosperity gospel, isn't it? Nothing about it looks good right now. There's still compromised, behaving sinfully, squabbling, not clear about what the right thing to do is, loving people who big them up rather than people who really love them. This is what happened to his work. And as you look around the rest of the New Testament, 
similar stuff crops up all over the place. How many of Paul's letters reflect good situations that he's writing to? Well, most of them are catastrophic. All of them have got something wrong with them. Folks, let me just say this as strongly, as strongly as I possibly can. True gospel ministry is no guarantee of anything successful looking. If you do it right, chances are it'll look like this. True gospel ministry is strongly opposed in many ways. Not least by people who look properly Christian and very impressive, as we'll find the, the false apostles looked. True gospel ministry involves a great deal of relational complexity. The true gospel worker spends a lot of time trying to mend things that have gone wrong, some of them things that he or she started off. The true gospel worker spends a great deal of time having to explain himself or herself to people who have either misunderstood motives or willfully misrepresented motives and actions. The true gospel worker spends a lot of time having to defend themselves against false and malicious accusations. That's what true gospel ministry looks like. Now, <laughs> that can either seem encouraging or discouraging, depending where you're sitting. If you think it ought to look nicer than that, that'll have been a discouraging word. <laughs> However, if you're doing it and finding it hard, it'll be a terrific relief to find the Apostle Paul also found it hard. And if you've got squabbles in your church that seem almost irreconcilable, it'll be a great relief to find that you're in good company. And it doesn't necessarily mean everything's been done wrong. And if you find yourself in pastoral situations where you really are not sure what the right thing is to do, or whether you've done the right thing, well, you'll find a good friend in the Apostle Paul here because he sends the letter off and he's not sure if he's done the right thing. You don't always know what the right thing to do is if you're involved in gospel ministry because it's complicated. Now, we won't have time this weekend to look at all the detail. What we will try to do is to get inside how this extraordinary gospel worker attempts to deal with these things. And in this letter, we have displayed in front of us what true gospel ministry looks like. It looks like a guy who writes a letter like this to people like these. Why is it useful to know what that's like? Well, because false gospel ministries come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. How do you recognize them? Well, the best way to recognize anything false is to know the true thing really well. I'm told that that's the best, that that's what you need to do if you're the sort of person who has to spot counterfeit banknotes. You don't have to know all the counterfeits and be able to recognize them instantly. What you have to do is to be able to know absolutely what a proper banknote looks like so that when you see the alternative, you think, no, that's not the proper thing at all. That's what we'll try and do this weekend. What does the proper thing look like? What are its characteristics? What kinds of things come to the person who's doing it properly? 2 Corinthians is the true gospel worker in action. Let me quote uh, finally from uh, a quotation I found just 20 minutes ago uh, in uh, Paul Barnett's uh, book, uh, Short Commentary on 2 Corinthians. Paul Barnett is a wonderful commentator on the Corinthian letters. He's just immersed himself in these letters for the last 10 or 15 years, he writes this, 2 Corinthians is great biblical literature. It depicts a powerful debate between Paul on the one hand and on the other, the alliance between his shadowy opponents who'd recently come to Corinth and the local church members who supported them. It's a fascinating record of that conflict. Above all, however, the letter is important for its magnificent theological message that the power of God is brought to bear on man, not in man's power, but in his weakness. 
That is the way Paul defends his ministry. He says, I know it doesn't look powerful. They are absolutely right about that. But it is powerful, and that's how God works. Right, we're done. Let's pray. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that this weekend you would please help us to see the true thing for what it really is. Help us to get inside the shape of the work of the gospel. Help us to uh, be encouraged by the fact that uh, it was difficult for the Apostle Paul, and so it ought to be difficult for anyone involved in that kind of enterprise. We thank you most particularly, Heavenly Father, that in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, in that great work through which you have reconciled the world to yourself, your power was displayed in the weakest possible looking way. And we acknowledge that uh, that is still the way you do things. That your power in the life of the Christian and in the advance of the gospel is not seen in things that look splendid and successful and spectacular, but in things which are pitifully weak looking. And we thank you that you do that so that we might be convinced that the power and the wisdom and the glory and the honor belong to you and to you alone and not to us. Please help us to see these things more clearly this weekend. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.